Amen. Well, if you would open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 19. Um, it's also a printout in your bulletin. It's a fairly lengthy passage, but we're going to read it this morning. Um, you know, it's been a little while since we've been in the book of Exodus. We've had Christmas and New Year. So let me just give you a brief rundown reminder of, uh, of where we are. If you recall, God called Moses on that mountain, Mount Sinai, he called to him from a burning bush, and, and he called him, and he said, go into Egypt and deliver my people out of bondage, and, and he's done that, and they, they departed the Red Sea, they've left Egypt, but for, for a while now, they've been, been wandering around in the wilderness, and, and they've been doing a lot of complaining, they've been complaining about lack of water, and then the food, and then lack of water, but if you recall, God has been gracious throughout this time, and he's given them what, what they need. It's been 49 days since they left Egypt. Now, how do we know this? Well, the passage we're about to read says it's, it's the third new moon after the people had left. And for those of you here who aren't experts on new moons, uh, that is seven weeks or, or 49 days since they've left. Now, they come to a mountain in the wilderness, in the wilderness of Sinai, but but it isn't just any old mountain. Understand this. This is the very same mountain from which Moses received his call on the burning bush, out of the burning bush, to go. And why are they back there? Well, if you remember in Exodus chapter 3, verse 12, God said, I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt. You shall serve God on this mountain. In our passage we're about to read, God has these very same people gathered around that very same mountain. Now, they don't know it yet, but they're about ready to have a very, very important meeting with God. Sounds intimidating, doesn't it? Well, don't worry. God will prepare them to meet with him. Exodus chapter 19. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt... On that day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called out to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him all the people answered together and said, All that the, that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak to you, and may also believe you forever. When Moses told these words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go tell the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around saying, 
Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people, and he consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up. The Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. And also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come out up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them, This is the word of our Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word to us. In some ways, it seems um, outside of our scope. Um, It's so long ago, and things seem so different back then. But we do know that you are the self-same God, the one who called your ancient people. You also call out to us today. May we learn more and more how to prepare ourselves to be in your presence, we pray. Amen. Have you ever been invited to lunch or coffee with someone only to find out after you're sitting down that they really had an agenda for meeting with you? Sometimes it can be a little off-putting, like when they're trying to sell you insurance. But other times can be quite stimulating. What? You think I would make a good vice principal, and you're, you're putting my name in the hat? Really? Meetings like this can leave you feeling invigorated, and you tend to experience gratitude and respect and perhaps even reverence for the person that you met with, right? Well, that's what's happening in chapter 19, the book of Exodus. The people think that God had brought them to this mountain. Why? Because there's just really good water there, <laughs> But God has an agenda. In three days' time, God is coming down to meet, not just with Moses, but with all of them. In chapters 20 and 24, which follow right after this, in fact, right after our passage, the Ten Commandments come. Um, God is about ready to deliver his commands to his people. But now, now there is a problem. The people aren't properly prepared to meet with God. God had saved them, but they're clueless as to what it means to be his people. It's true, we too can suffer from that, right? We can experience God's grace to us in Christ, and yet we can remain ignorant as to what it really means to belong to God's people. 
Add to that, the nation suffers from what we all suffer from in our natural state. They're impure. But God is holy and pure and perfect. How is it then that they can be prepared to enter into God's presence? We too lack the moral ability to be in God's presence. It's arrogance on our part to think that we can just draw near to God, to cozy up to God, to relate to God, and experience His presence apart from His merciful condescension. And it is also impossible for us to draw near to God without God properly preparing us. That's what God shows us in Exodus chapter 19. God mercifully condescends to meet with his people, but they are not yet prepared to meet with Yahweh, their God. So, God instructs Moses on how to prepare his people to meet their God. That's what we're going to look at this morning. And we're going to look at that under three headings. First, we're going to look at the calling, then the consecration, and then the coming. First, the calling. The big idea here is this. Before we can meet with God and know what it's like to become part of his family, we must first hear from God and understand him and receive it from him. Before God formally meets his people in three days, he makes sure that they understand something big is going on. God is going to say to them, I didn't just save you to shake your hand and, and, and wish you well and then send you on your way. I saved you to be my people who live out a great calling. Moses climbs up Mount Sinai and God commands him in verse 3 to go back down with a message. The message in verses 4 through 6. That's In this message is God's call upon his people. Listen, these verses are some of the most beautiful, most satisfying words in all of the Bible. Essentially, God is telling them of his unconditional love and deliverance. And he reminds them of his covenant promises to to make the nation his dearly beloved treasured possession. And then he informs them of his purpose and his plan for his people. Oh, that we would hear these words afresh this morning. We see in verse 4, we hear God says, listen, he says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. It's true, isn't it? We so often need reminding of God's gracious actions toward us. So too this nation gathered around the mountain. God is reminding them what of how he delivered them out of bondage in Egypt. And God reminded them how he bore them on eagles' wings. Now, they probably wouldn't think it was that. They were wandering around the desert for 49 days. But God, in his mind, was bearing them on eagles' wings. And why did God bear them on his eagles' wings? Why? What does it say? To bring you to Myself. Listen, when God saves you, He does not save you to roam aimlessly on the earth until you die. He saves you to bring you somewhere, and that place is Himself. God also wanted the Israelites to be clear about something. This was all God's doing. Israel could not save itself, they were powerless. And God brought it about from start to finish. 
Salvation is God's work. It's his idea. It's his power. It's his love. It's his mercy. It's his grace. All we can ever do is admit our need for it and receive it as a gift. We don't deserve God's grace. If we did, it wouldn't be called grace, would it? God wants these Israelites to see that he has saved them by his mercy and his grace, and he has brought them to himself. Only then, after understanding that in verse 5, God gives his people a chance to respond. Now, at first it seems like God is saying, well, if you guys just clean up your act and obey me, well, then you'll get my blessing, and uh, then I'll be your God. But that's not what's going on. Remember 400 years ago, God called Abraham. His name was Abram at the time. We read this call in Genesis 12. If you're a Christian, uh, this is very important for your life as well. It's one of the big themes of the Bible. Here's God's words to Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. Why? So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. Listen. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. Do you see that? God's grace comes first. Then comes faith and obedience. It's always been this way for God's people. Abraham believed God's covenant promises, and he laid hold of them by faith and walked in obedience. So too, Abraham, he had a son named Isaac who came to believe, and what did he do? He laid hold of God's covenant promises and obeyed. Isaac had a son, Jacob, who got his name changed to Israel. Israel believed God's covenant promises, and he laid hold of them as his own. And now, over 400 years later, the offspring, the very offspring of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob are gathered around the mountain of God because God has brought them to himself. They're there, and they've probably perhaps heard the stories about God calling Abraham and, and, and Isaac and Jacob, but oh my gosh, that was so long ago. And so God, before he meets formally with the nation in a few days, gives the nation a chance to lay a hold of this covenant of grace and make it their own. Sorry about that. God says, if you respond to my grace by saying, yes, we belong to you, Lord, then you'll receive all the benefits of the covenant. God says, you'll be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. It's amazing, isn't it? The Israelites had, had grown up in Egypt, and they grew up polytheists just like their Egyptian neighbors. But God is saying, there is but one God over the whole earth, and that's me. And guess what? I've called you to be my treasured possession. It's fascinating, isn't it? Isn't it true? It's not just me, right? But, but we, tend to feel, we tend to feel bad that we, that we really don't treasure God enough, right? We think, I wish I loved God more. I wish I focused my life more on God. But God says here that he treasures us. 
He treasures us before we ever begin to treasure him. Perhaps the reason you don't treasure God like you feel you should is because you don't, just, you don't comprehend just how much God truly treasures you. See, the more you comprehend God's love for you, the more you love God and treasure him. The apostle John wrote, we love God, we love because God first loved us. We must see also that our status as treasured children of God, it comes with a special calling. Look at verse 6. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is the first time in the Bible that God refers to his people as kingdom of priests. Grace and read from an, another passage in the New Testament in Peter. Um, but what do priests do? Essentially, very simply, priests stand between God and humans in order to bring God to humans and humans to God. It's that simple. God also says there to be a holy nation. Now, when, when we normally hear the word holy, we think of like moral purity, right? And rightly so. But it's, it's really, first and foremost, the Hebrew word translated holy here means to be set apart, uh, to be dedicated. It's the same root word used in verse 22 where we translate it with the word consecrated. To be holy means to be set apart by God as his people. You're my treasured possession. I've consecrated you to myself. Now, taken together, what does it mean to have this calling to be priests in a holy nation? Well, really, it's just a further clarification of what, what that call that Abram had. I will bless Abraham and, and I will make you a mighty nation so that through you all the nations will experience my blessing. It's the same calling in which Jesus says when he says, you're to be salt and light in this world. You're to be like a city on a hill that shines its light. Why? Because you're a kingdom of priests with a holy calling. To shine my light into this dark world. It's the same calling. Do you see how important your calling is? God has a purpose in saving everyone he saves. We've been set apart by God for God. So that through our priestly work on earth, more and more people experience the mercy and the grace of God. God is on a mission to redeem and to restore. And he saves us and calls us into that very same mission. Have you experienced that call in your life? Has this calling captured your soul? That is what the Lord is having Moses convey to the people down the mountain. God is calling them to affirm that they belong to this covenant promise that was first given to Abraham. And in verse 8, they stand united and they say, Yes, Lord, all that the Lord has spoken of, we will do. But they're still not prepared to meet with God. So that's the calling. Now for the consecration. You know, I've officiated a number of weddings now, and I've been to a lot more. And I can say with great certainty that I've never witnessed a dirty, smelly bride. What bride, as she prepares to meet her bridegroom, would not consecrate herself for her wedding? There is a solemnity to getting married. And so the bride spends hours from 3 a.m. making sure she looks good and, of course, smells her very best. God is saying to his people in some ways, he's saying, I'm your bridegroom, you are my bride. And when you come to meet me, be consecrated. 
This is a solemn event to meet with your God. That's what God says in verses 9 through 11. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. they got two days to wash their garments. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in sight of all the people. God instructs his Moses to tell the people to consecrate themselves. And he gives them three commands. First, he says, clean your clothes. They're dirty. They stink. Now, why is it that he demands them to clean their clothes? It's not like they can really get their clothes clean, right? I mean, they've got no Tide detergent. There's no bounty fabric softener. The cleaning is symbolic. Think about it. Think think about this. It would have been a huge undertaking. There's roughly 1.5 million people standing in line to go and clean their clothes with lots of time to think. Why is God having me clean his clothes, my clothes? Perhaps because I'm an unclean person. Perhaps there's a moral filth to my life. I am not pure. I'm not holy. And God is. I need a radical cleansing in his presence. Second, God gives them a warning in verse 12 to set limits around the mountain so that people don't cross the line and and need to be put to death. Now, if you've ever been to a crime scene, I'm sure you've probably seen it on TV where they get that that yellow plastic tape that says police uh, line, do not cross. Well, God instructs Moses to get together work detail, to put up some yellow plastic tape all around Mount Sinai saying, pure and powerful God, do not cross. God is pure and we are not. Listen, understand this. It's not that God wants to harm people with his holiness. If you think that the God of the Old Testament is a brutal, harsh, and angry God, you're wrong. If you get just one thing out of this sermon, it's this. God wants to draw near to human beings. The problem isn't God, it's us. Our sin is really a problem. It makes us impure. And nothing impure can come near the perfectly pure God of the universe. So God warns people in his love. He cares for them. God says, cleanse your clothes, right? That's the first one. God says, set up boundaries so you don't come too close. And lastly, he says, stop having sex. (laughs) Where's that? Is that in there? Verse 15, Moses said to the people, be ready for the third day. Be ready for this day. Do not go near a woman. That's a slang for refrain from sexual intercourse. Now, if you know your Bible well, you know that God affirms sex, sex in its proper context and within the covenant boundaries of marriage between a man and a woman, sex is good. So why would God say to avoid sex for for three days? Listen, God is trying to impress upon his people the solemnity of what's going to take place. You're going to meet with God himself. He will speak to you. Don't stay up for three nights, two nights playing Fortnite. Put the game console down. Prepare yourself to hear from him. Some of us, that's a challenge for us as we come on Sundays to to show up early. Take time to prepare your heart. This is a solemn event. We're gathering as God's people to worship him. 
Let, let the plates sit on the table. Clean them after church. Arrive and rejoice. It's a solemn event to be here, to open up the Word of God, to pray, to encourage each other. So, we've looked at the calling and the consecration. Now for the coming. God comes to his people, and when he comes, it is both, he comes in both terrifying glory and in tender love and care. First, how about the tender, oh, terrifying glory? We'll get that first. So many people are so sure that if they really did come into God's presence, that it would be no big thing, right? But truly, how could this be? Think it through. If God is the almighty creator of everything in the universe, how could he be anything but powerful and glorious and awesome? Verse 16, we see the beginning of the coming down. God God blows a trumpet signaling it's go time, time to move out. Imagine being there, my friends. The people, they look to the mountain and they see this thick column of smoke forming. And then they hear this deafening blow of a trumpet. And they, and they pee in their pants. Not exactly, but it's something like that. The text says, and all the people trembled. Verse 17, Moses gathers the people and they, and they all come out of the camp. They go further closer to the edge of the mountain. Imagine yourself being there. Verse 18 says the whole mountain, top to bottom, is wrapped in smoke. Why is that? Because the Lord has descended upon it in fire. Fire purifies. God purifies this mountain. He he consecrates it so that he can be there with his holy presence. And what do we read there now? We read that the, the whole mountain trembled greatly. Just imagine being there. Verse 19 says, The trumpet grew louder and louder. And then then Moses speaks, and then God answers in thunder. In verse 20, we read, The Lord came down to Mount Sinai. It's poetic. The Lord came down to Mount Sinai, to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up. Imagine being there, gathered around the mountain. You're trembling. You're seeing this awesome sight of, of lightning and thunder and fire and smoke. And you watch your leader, the one who's cared for you. You watch Moses depart from the crowd and walk towards the hill. And slowly he disappears into the smoke. God comes in terrifying glory. Why does God come in terrifying glory? Because we need him to. God must get our attention. Listen, understand this. The Israelites, they had other gods in their pockets. No, literally, in their pockets. In Egypt, they worshipped the many gods of the Egyptians. And so they would take wood or metal and they would craft these idols, these little gods, and they'd carry them around with them. God, idols of prosperity or fertility or good fortune. Now imagine what must have taken place that day on the mountain. Throughout the camp, as people stood there in awe, you would have heard thump, 
thump, thump. What was going on? One by one, the Israelites took the idols out of their pockets and they dropped them to the ground. The thought most likely going through their head as this mountain trembled, their minds are probably thinking, there is but one God over this world and he has called me to himself. Therefore, I must drop all of my idols. Dump. My friends, unless the glory of God in some way causes you to tremble, you will never lay down the idols to which you bow. Oh, don't get me wrong. I don't think you carry them around in your pockets. But every human being worships something. We have idols of prosperity and fertility and good fortune, or you name it. Things that capture our minds and our hearts. That is, until God comes into our lives and shows us something far better. My friends, essentially that's what repentance is. Repentance is about you and me realizing that the God of the universe is the greatest of all. And that we come to realize this. That he must capture our hearts. He must be where we seek our prosperity and fertility and and good fortune. So God comes to these ancient people in terrifying glory. But I also want us to see that he comes to them in tender love and care. We see God's tender love and care for his people in somewhat of an odd way. We see it in his repeated warnings. Those of you who are parents know how warnings really can be a sign of love and tender care. His first warning happened three days earlier in verse 12 where, where God tells Moses to set limits around the mountain. Remember, they put up the tape uh, and, and he told him not to go up. Now in verse 21, we see warning number two. And now, check this out. I think you might find this to be, in a, kind of an odd way, a little bit funny. So Moses walks up the mountain in this thick cloud, like <coughs> the whole way up, you know. Okay, I'm going to, I'm going to meet God. I'm going to, I'm going to hear from God. And he gets up there. And in verse 20, 21, uh, God, ha- God says essentially, um, thanks for coming up to see me. Uh, uh, I want you to go back down the mountain and warn the people not to come too close. Okay, Moses? That's what I want you to do. And Moses, like, scratches his head and, and says, Lord, I've already done that. Three days ago, I went down. You remember I put up that yellow plastic tapey thing around the mountain? I mean, we've done that. Really, you want me to go down again? And we issue another warning? So in verse 24, God repeats his warning. And he said, and the Lord said to him, Yes, Moses, <laughs> Go down and come up later and bring Aaron with you. Do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. You see what's going on here? God, in his tender loving care for his people, makes sure that Moses comes all the way up so he can return all the way back down so that every measure is taken so that not one of God's people enters that mountain. See, God knows us better than we know ourselves. God knows that we're naive, that we're ignorant, 
or both. God knows that our human nature wants to push past his good boundaries. He knows that about us. God knows our frailty. And so in tender loving care, he sends Moses back to be with his people until he speaks the Ten Commandments, which is exactly what happens in just a moment or two. Now, millions of people in America today would say, you Christians are whacked out. (laughs) My God would never do that. My God never put up boundaries around himself, and he certainly wouldn't hurt anyone who broke through. You know, many people today, many moderns, postmoderns, look at this passage and they think, you know, your God, he's just an angry spoil sport. I need to teach him a lesson in civility, right? Well, that's the attitude that C.S. Lewis addressed in his own time. In his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, in, in, the, he, in the Chronicles of Narnia, there's this Christ-like character. His name is Aslan. He, he's, a, he's a lion. Edmund and Lucy and Peter and Susan, they, they hear about Aslan, that, that one day he's going to return. And Mr. Beaver, yeah, Beaver, all right, says, says that wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. And hearing this, Susan says, she asks, if, if she will see him. Mr. Beaver says, well, of course, that's what I brought you here for, to meet Aslan, the great Lion King, to which Lucy says, is, is he a man? Aslan a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he's the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I I thought he was a man. Is, Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. My friends, God is not safe, but he's good. You know, today God doesn't come and present himself in fire and smoke. I think some of us might wish he did sometime. God doesn't come down and make mountains tremble. Why? Well, it's not because God has changed. He's not changed. But our ability to draw near to him has changed. How so? Well, think about it. Think back to those Israelites. They're standing, standing 50,000 people deep in a line to wash their clothes. As they're standing there, would they not think this is woefully inadequate? How can just washing these clothes and cleanse me in some way to meet this holy, pure, and, and awesome God? 
They would have realized that God was simply allowing this ceremonial cleansing to point to a greater cleansing to come. The cleansing that Christ gives to all who look upon him in faith. My friends, the cleansing of Christ is it's perfect. It's a complete cleansing. Why? Because it's God's work for us, not done by his hands, but by the hands of the very Son of God himself. He poured out his life unto death. By his blood we are cleansed. Once again, seeing Christ on the cross and his cleansing points to the amazing grace of God. God who says, I've saved you by my grace. You've not earned it. I have made you worthy in my sight. Why? Because I chose to. You're my beloved, treasured possession. I've cleansed you. You haven't cleansed yourself. It's my work for you through my son. My friends, this is why we confess today that our lives are not our own. We belong to another. How could they ever be our own? We belong to God. By his grace, we have become God's treasured possession. And God has given us the best of all callings to be to be a kingdom of priests, and his holy people. And so, Grace Church, in this New Year's, we kind of kick it off. We need to be reminded of our calling. You know, we don't gather here once a week just to have our needs met. I mean, that's good. It's important. But we exist as a church for those who don't know God in our community. That is our calling. Yes, we minister to each other, but for the purpose that we can be strengthened to go out and to focus our lives on those who don't yet know God. That's what it means to be a kingdom of priests, a holy people, set apart as separate, but not separated from this world. That's not what it means. It means to be so in love with the people around us who don't know Christ that we do whatever it takes to reach them. My friends, if you're in Christ, that's your calling. You're not to be a solo Christian doing your own thing. You're called into the people of God. In the New Testament, that's the church. We gather and then we go. I don't say this to lay a burden on you. I just say to remind us of our calling. We know this. And where do we get the strength to do this? Where do we get the the motivation? It's not so that we can earn God's favor, so we can say, look, I'm pretty good at evangelism. No. God already treasures you as his child. You have nothing left to do to to improve that status out of that knowledge. Therefore, go and lead people to Christ. Now, until that day that Christ returns and brings us face to face with the God that he's prepared us to meet, maybe live as salt and light, and maybe live out our calling in this dying and dark world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that um, you still cause us to tremble, not, not in fear, but in awe of who you are. You have called us with a purifying love. You've cared for our souls. You've, you've gone to get us to bring us to yourself. We cannot be the same. There's no way. We, 
we confess that we believe this. And in obedience, we desire to walk before you. Amen.